Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller, my co-host. Uh, we have three major topics for you today. First off, we're going to talk about Microsoft's event this week in which it announced a variety of new Windows 10 devices. Uh, after that, we'll do our question of the week segment. And this week, I'll be uh, handling that in that I've done the research on the particular topic that we're covering, which is what's going on in the US wireless market and who's winning. And then our third topic today will be Steve Jobs, both the man and the movie, as it were, um, with the fourth anniversary of Steve Jobs' death this week, and also the Steve Jobs film that's coming out, the Aaron Sorkin, Danny Boyle film. Uh, which has been the subject of some controversy and discussion uh, recently. So we'll be talking about both Steve Jobs, the man, and the movie and things related to that. And then we'll wrap up, as always, with our weekly pick, and it's Aaron's turn uh, to do that this week, and he has a book to recommend to us. So kicking off with a Microsoft event, um, just by way of background, if anybody hasn't had a chance to read about this yet, um, Microsoft announced Windows 10, the latest version of Windows, uh, a couple of months back, or rather they released it, having announced it earlier in the year, and we, we had a whole episode dedicated to Windows 10 a few weeks back, so go check that out if you haven't listened to it yet. Um, but this week it announced a range of devices that kind of go along with that software launch, um, including a new Microsoft Band, which is their sort of fitness wearable, um, HoloLens, which is a holographic sort of augmented reality device that you wear around your head, um, which will come out in a developer version early next year and presumably be released to the public shortly after. Um, there were new Lumia phones, and, and as a reminder, this is the division that Microsoft acquired from Nokia uh, a while back. Uh, so new smartphones running Windows 10 in its mobile version. Uh, and then the bulk of the event was really taken up by two devices under the Surface brand, the first of which was the Surface Pro 4, so the latest in a range of Surface Pro devices, and then a brand new device, which was something of a surprise, unlike almost everything else that had been widely leaked ahead of time, um, which is called the Surface Book, which is a laptop. Um, so that was what was announced. Um, it's roughly sort of two-hour event uh, earlier this week. Uh, I watched it happening live, and, and I wrote a post about it for Beyond Devices, which we'll link to in the show notes. Um, but Aaron, you've had a chance to read about it too. What were your kind of overall impressions from what you have read about this week? Yeah, so I didn't actually watch the event, but I read a ton of the coverage. And I, there was an interesting vibe I got that this was one of their more polished, professional events that they've ever done it seems like every year i'm reading about a microsoft event there's some really awkward moment that everybody's talking about where usually a microsoft executive is not being especially self-aware and right and, and i mean you had comments about nadella's closing bit um but overall it it seemed like it was it wasn't full it didn't have any of those weird moments throughout like it it just seemed like it was a really polished event this time at least all the coverage i've read of it which which i think is telling you something about microsoft as an increasingly consumer focused company so and their products are pointing that way too yeah it's which is fascinating because in many ways they're actually facing a reality where most of their money is going to come from business customers and yet you know they've now got these devices which they didn't have before and, and one of the most interesting things to me is that you know Steve Barmer his strategy officially for the last couple of years that he was leading Microsoft was all about devices and services and when Nadella came in it quickly became clear he was much more skeptical about that vision and he quickly changed it uh, but it's ironic that it's under Nadella that these devices have really kind of flourished you know the surface line is really starting to finally perform and, and approach profitability um, selling indecent, they're not stellar numbers. Um, you know, new smartphones, this new Surface Book, um, the HoloLens. You know, there's so many pieces of hardware coming out from Microsoft under Nadella. Even though, you know, he seemed initially more skeptical of the value of those devices. But I think to your point, you know, Microsoft needs these kind of hero devices to prove that it's still relevant in this market, and to to some extent sh to showcase some of the features of Windows, which for whatever reason OEMs have been unable to properly bring out in their devices. And that's one of the biggest messages from this event was the OEMs aren't getting it done. And so Microsoft has to come and get it done for them, which, you know, the Surface was sort of a very um, categorized or qualified device and they positioned it in a very particular way that was not supposed to be directly competitive with laptops. Uh, but this new Surface book is entirely a laptop. It was described as such throughout the presentation. So, you know, that's really interesting too. Um, 
But to your point about the actual presentations, um, you know, the first part of the the event was run by Terry Myerson, who oversees, you know, this whole part of Windows, uh, of Microsoft, excuse me. Um, And he's an okay presenter. He's not the most dynamic presenter, but he did okay. But then um, two other presenters came on. One was a guy called Brian Roper, who has a fascinating history. He's a former blues musician who got discovered somewhere, I think on a cruise ship or somewhere like that, and is now Microsoft's main demo guy. And he has this little pork pie hat, and he's got this, you know, very unusual sort of vibe and uh, you know came out with some great phrases during his demo just lots of energy and there's an interesting profile of him on the Microsoft website which would be well worth reading if you're interested but uh, you know tons of personality one of the more interesting demos I've ever seen um, just in terms of his his flow his you know engagement with the audience and that kind of thing very much a performer um, and then the bulk of the rest of the presentation was led by Panos Panay who's recently been appointed the head of all devices at Microsoft so he oversees all the things that were announced at the event um, but who really has come from the surface side that was kind of his baby and so you know he's very enthusiastic about the Lumia devices but he, he basically inherited those from the former mobile devices team the surface stuff is really his stuff and so but he was passionate and energetic about the whole thing you know uh, it was funny because you kind of contrast it with the google event which we talked about last week you know it was very clear that the presenters at the google event were reading off teleprompters um, and although they knew their stuff, they were very clearly reading a script. Whereas Panos Panay, I didn't see him look at a teleprompter once. You know, I'm sure he had some kind of prompts around the room, but he genuinely seemed to be speaking from the heart much of the time. He seemed to be genuinely pumped um, and excited about this stuff, very passionate about it, and seemed to really believe in it. And it was a great vibe, and one we haven't necessarily seen in quite the same way from Microsoft. We're very used to seeing it at Apple events from people like Craig Federighi and Phil Schiller and Steve Jobs before them. Um, but we haven't had that from Microsoft, so that was an interesting change. I think it's. I, I think if we were to get behind the scenes, we would see that Microsoft rehearsed like crazy on this. Oh, I'm sure. And and, and Apple's known for doing this too with their events. And yeah. Google has zero reputation for rehearsing their events. I mean, there's no mm-hmm. story. There are no stories out right. there of Google spending three days straight tuning an event before they went public. And and you know, it's funny because. That that sort of that level of rehearsal makes a huge difference. I teach communications to some to a group of graduate students in the business school here, and when we get to presentations, I, I can't drive home with enough emphasis how important it is to rehearse. The more right. you rehearse, and even just in little moments, like in front of the bathroom mirror, right, or mm. or when you're sitting on the bus, you know, and you're sort of running it through in your head that this kind of rehearsal just turns into polish. And and the reason it works is because you you own it from that point forward. And then that's right. what really makes it authentic is the fact that what you practice over and over again has become part of you and, and you, mm-hmm. are, you are convinced. And so it's a lot easier to in turn do the convincing. And I, you know, I wish presenters would realize that teleprompters are not convincing. It's just, right. they're not. It doesn't feel right. authentic and people feel, they don't see the teleprompter necessarily, but they feel mm-hmm. it between them and the presenter. Yeah, so. definitely. And it's fine for a prepared speech, but if you're actually supposed to be presenting rather than just right. speaking. I mean, it's one thing if you're a politician giving a speech or yeah. something like that, but it's very different if you are you know, supposed to be presenting something and, and you know, showing excitement and, and you know, some dynamism. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, so on to the sort of specific products. And we won't spend much time on the band. Um, you know, it was an upgrade, an interesting upgrade. Um, to my mind, the band's becoming a very sort of interesting self-contained sort of fitness wearable. Um, you know, it has a lot of Map My Run type features in the back end from the cloud perspective as both apps and, and websites and so on. And, you know, it's interesting to contrast that with what Apple's doing with a watch where the activity tracking stuff is pretty bare bones and, and they largely rely on third parties of which there are plenty. And I wonder to some extent if that's, you know, Microsoft's cloud heritage and wanting to play that up or if it's their difficulty in getting partners on board. But it was interesting to see that. Um, but that was a fairly minor announcement in general. Um, Lumia phones, 950 and 950XL, these are the new flagships for Windows 10 on mobile devices. And, and there hasn't been a flagship for Windows Mobile or Windows Phone um, for several years now. You know, it's had lots of success at the low end of the market, very cheap devices, especially in emerging markets. But this is the first time we've seen new flagships from them. Um, you know, priced at the high end, sort of similar to the iPhone, the, the smaller of the two devices, about $100 less. Um, you know, majoring on cameras, which was always a thing for Nokia, not that it's really helped them to sell a lot of devices. Um, 
but tons of emphasis in the event on very high spec devices. And one of the key reasons why they have to have such high specs is not their performance as phones per se, but because uh, with Windows 10, one of the things that these phones can do is basically drive a PC-like experience from the phone um, so that you plug them into a dock uh, and, uh, you know, attached to the dock would have to be a display and a keyboard and a mouse, but essentially it becomes a full Windows 10 PC experience running off your phone through those peripherals. So, uh, and the name of that feature is Continuum. Um, and Aaron, I know you had some thoughts about that. Well, you know, the first thing that came to mind was the Motorola Atrix from years ago. When Motorola tried to do this on the Android platform right. to have essentially, a you know, a, a desktop equivalent, you know, experience being driven out of a phone. That hmm. obviously didn't go anywhere, um, but I think right. Motorola was the wrong company to try it. I th it what, what I find interesting about Continuum coming from Microsoft is this is there are two things being really put to the test with this. One is the idea that a phone that that somebody would want their phone to be their PC, um, and, and this is going to be the best test of this concept we're going to get ever, probably in history, right? Because right. Microsoft is the right company to try it. Um, with the way they've positioned Windows 10. And, um, you know, they've, they've shown that they have hardware chops, right? Both what they've imported mm -hmm. from Nokia, but also what they've been able to pull off with the Surface. Yeah. And so it's an interesting question. Like, do people want their phone to be able to drive their PC for them? Uh, the problem that I see with this strategy is that you have to have this extra hardware to make it happen. Right, and, and the only time I could picture a phone being useful as a PC is on an ad hoc basis, right, when you're away from your normal computer. Right, um, and you suddenly find you need to get something done. Exactly, but if that's the case, then you need extra hardware to make that happen. And right, you're not going to carry the monitor and everything else around with you. Well, or even just the little dongle thing that you have right. to plug everything into. Mm -hmm. I mean, the problem is that... Uh, I have our, maybe Road Warriors would get excited about this, but I think they're going to be more excited about the Surface Book than they are about turning their right. phone into a PC. And, yeah. and so I think this is going to be the purest, best test we get of the concept of a phone driving a PC experience, and I don't think it's going to be a huge hit um, because of the reasons we talked about. Right. Yeah. I mean, the cost of those peripherals together, you know, a mo decent monitor, the dock itself, which will cost extra, um, the keyboard and the mouse, you know, could easily be several hundred dollars. And, you know, for the price of that, you could buy a cheap laptop or a desktop PC, you know. And, and the reality is, you know, Microsoft hasn't exactly been pushing this, you know, keep everything on your device model. You know, they've got OneDrive and a whole bunch of other cloud services and, and even Windows. The whole point of it now with Windows 10 is that you can log into any PC anywhere with your Windows credentials and it becomes your PC. So you've got this whole cloud model already for all your stuff anywhere. Um, why do you need to take it with you on a device as well? And, you know, it's all very well to be able to plug your phone into these peripherals when you get somewhere, but what are you going to do before you get there? You know, that still ties you to that one specific location. So if you're on a plane, on a train, you know, you happen to be visiting somebody else's office or you're working from home or whatever, in none of those scenarios does this model work for you unless you also have all those peripherals there? And at that point, you know, what's the benefit of that versus just having a laptop, whether it's the Surface Book or something else? So, yeah, I think I'm equally skeptical of the benefits of this approach, um, even though, as you say, I think Microsoft's much better qualified to try it with a full version of Windows versus the sort of funny Firefox-based um, desktop interface that, that came with the Motorola Atrix with that model a few years back. Well, and um, the other thing I was going to say about that is um, you, you, I could picture, I, I mean, Maybe there's a concept out there in Microsoft's head about an ecosystem being built up around this model, where if I go to a hotel, for example, they've got the dock ready to go to plug into the TV so I can plug in my phone, that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, that would be the other solution to everything we just talked about. But right. building an ecosystem like that sounds crazy expensive and risky, mm -hmm. and I don't think that's going to happen either. So I think that's why it's going to fall apart. And then the, I mentioned there are two things being tested by this. The second is the universal app concept inherent to mm -hmm. Windows 10 and the idea yep. that they'll hopefully some somehow get developers to write apps that run on everything from a phone to a full-blown, you know, desktop screen. 
Right, and I've been sort of hugely sceptical on that model in general, but yeah, this continuum feature requires there to be a desktop version of the app baked in too that you install on your phone along with the phone version of the app such that it can then show up when you when you plug it into the dock and everything else. So yeah, it, it, it raises the bar even higher as far as you know what those universal apps have to do. They've gotten Facebook to commit to this, and we'll see how the mm-hmm. commitment plays out. Yeah. But... Uh, I mean, Facebook still doesn't have Messenger on the watch, so who knows if they're going to be able to do a universal app yes. for Windows 10. Yeah, he knows what the timing will be <laughs> on that. And, you know, I mean, the, the fact is Facebook already has Windows apps, and so, you know, it's not a huge step forward for them. But, you know, the other big question here is just, you know, Windows as a desktop and PC platform has a billion and a half users. It's still barely the biggest platform in the world, um, with Android very, very close behind. Um, and I, I published some numbers about this on my on Beyond Devices today. But um, the reality is that Windows on phones is tiny. It's well under 100 million still at this point. It's probably 80, 90 million, something like that. So it's about the same size as OS X. Um, you know, in a context of 1.4 billion, you know, official Android devices, several hundred million more sort of Chinese version of Android devices, and probably around 500 million iPhones. So, you know, that's the other big challenge here is the phone piece is tiny for Microsoft, and there's really nothing in the Lumia announcements that's going to change that. Um, you know, in the US, it quickly became out that AT&T was going to be the only carrier, so everybody was assuming that that meant it was yet another AT&T exclusive on a Windows phone device. It turns out it's not an exclusive at all. It's just the other carriers didn't want it. Um, so Verizon, T-Mobile, and Sprint all basically are passing on these new Lumia phones entirely, um, which you know is going to mean the sales in the U.S. will be, uh, you know, just as small as they always have been at the high end for Windows Phone. And you know, elsewhere it may do slightly better. There are some markets where Windows Phone does okay, but in those markets, it's been largely the low-end devices. So again, you know, not not huge prospects for for this sort of premium Lumia experience to do any better than it has done in the past. And I think there's a misconception on the de- on the way developers would work with this kind of a situation. I, it, in some cases, it's genuinely easier to write two separate apps, one for mm-hmm. the phone and one for the desktop, or one for mobile and one for desktop. And and so I think the the concept of Microsoft is it'll be easier for developers to want to design for Windows for sorry the phone platform because they'll be able to draw on all the stuff they've already created. But every time mm-hmm. you add a feature to any software product, you're increasing the complexity of that software product dramatically. Right. And it's almost easier and cleaner to just have two separate apps, right? One mm-hmm. for desktop, one for mobile, than it is right. to try to cram them all together in one universal app. Yeah. And I think that's that's the second idea that's gonna be tested by this. And I, I think they're asking too much of developers. Right. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, well, let's move on to the, the two Surface devices that were announced, the Surface Pro 4 and the Surface Book. Um, you know, and again, I wrote a post that was largely focused on those two, so I won't talk a great deal about it here. But you know, one of the most striking things to me was, you know, Surface Pro 4, like the Surface Pro 3 before it was described as a the tablet that can replace your laptop and B is not involving any compromises, which I've always felt was a, a silly statement and claim to make. But then immediately afterwards, this time around, Microsoft goes ahead and announces a laptop anyway, which <laughs> rather undermines the whole argument that the Surface Pro 4 could be kind of all you would ever need and there were no compromises inherent in it. Um, you know, the fact is that there are different form factors and they serve different purposes and there are compromises inherent in every device. And you know, immediately as he started talking about the Surface Book, Panos Panay talked up some of the benefits, you know, a bigger screen, a better typing experience, it's more solid when you have it on your lap and all the rest of it. Um, you know, there are good reasons why people continue to prefer laptops to tablets for certain tasks and always will. Um, but, you know, the, the laptop that they actually introduced, the Surface Book, looks very compelling, really premium, some really clever uh, design features, um, pretty light, very comparable in weight to a MacBook Pro. Uh, at 13 inches um, and similar specs um, costs a couple of hundred dollars more, which is interesting because you know Macs have usually been more expensive than equivalent Windows computers, and this this rather turns that on its head. Um, and that makes it very interesting too, because the vast majority of Windows PCs are sold at the sub $1,000 range, and this is $1,499 and up. I think it goes up to about $2,700 in the fully spec'd version. Um, and so you know. For all that Microsoft is kind of undermining its OEMs a little bit here, it's really not targeting the core sort of sweet spot for those OEMs. And HP came out with a bunch of new Windows PCs. I think there were eight or ten of them that they announced uh, at different price points. But the very highest price point for those PCs is fourteen ninety nine. So, um, you know, interesting that Microsoft still left the sort of price umbrella for its OEMs to continue to compete underneath that. But yeah, a great presentation, compelling looking devices. 
Um, but yeah, just this bizarre juxtaposition of these two devices where one's supposed to replace laptops and one is a laptop. To, to Microsoft's credit, they haven't given up on the Surface. Um, and early on, I was wondering if that was going to happen. Not wondering, I was assuming that was going to happen. But they stuck it out, and it, it's been one of those products that started off really rough. Um, in fact, if you remember the RT, right, um, the mm -hmm. really underpowered tablet that was kind of a mess and, and, and really disappointed a lot of people that bought it. Right. Um, you know, Microsoft has sort of found its way through some pretty high-profile mistakes to make the Surface into mm -hmm. a pretty compelling product. And and I say that not because I use the Surface, but I have colleagues in my department here on campus that use it. And more importantly, and I think this is a fantastic litmus test, I have students using it in class. Um, in fact, the devices right. I, see, I see, obviously, Windows and Mac laptops, um, and I see iPads, and I see Surface tablets. I don't ever see Android tablets. I mean, I can't even think of the last time I saw a student using an Android tablet in class. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but, but th there is a presence now uh, among college students with the Surface um, tablet. And that's why I think the Surface Book is going to have success among students. The, the truth is students, I don't know where they get the money, but they're buying MacBook Pros. <laughs> And right. I mean, not just MacBook Airs, but I see plenty of students with MacBook Pros, which puts them in the same price range as, as the Surface Books. And so mm -hmm. I'm not at all going to be surprised if I start seeing these pop up in class. And that's a pretty good litmus test of them having made a product that that has genuine usefulness and novelty to people. And so, you know, I why it's more expensive, I suspect some of it has to just do with the volume difference that Apple has versus Microsoft. I think it's interesting yeah, that sure they're using the aluminum billet approach, right, with the unibody frame. Like, that's they're designing this the same way. But they, yeah, they think it's magnesium rather than oh, aluminum right. in yeah, Microsoft's right, right. case. But it's the same yeah. concept, right, of milling a block yeah. of metal as, Absolutely. as a unibody approach. But mm -hmm. there's no way they have anything close to the same economies of scale in their manufacturing line. Right. And so right. Th to get the same quality, Microsoft's just going to have to do it in a way that's more expensive. Mm -hmm. But I think people are going to pay for it. And uh, I think they're going to pay those prices. And I, I won't be surprised to see Surface Books floating around next semester. Yeah, it'll be fascinating to watch because Apple's always, you know, had a minority market share of the PC market altogether, but it's dominated that premium segment. And so it'll be very interesting to see if this really changes that dramatically. Um, all right, well, let's move on to our question of the week. Um, I, I think we could easily sort of spend another few minutes talking about the Microsoft event, but in the interest of time, we'll, we'll save at least some of that for a future episode. Um, but our question of the week um, this week is, is one that I've been doing the, the background research on, and it kind of draws on my background as a telecoms analyst. But uh, the, uh, the topic that we're going to be talking about today is the U.S. wireless market and the U.S. wireless carriers specifically. Well, and the question, I love the simplicity of the question that we've set up for this weekend. The question is, who's winning? I mean, they, they, you've got these com, you know, major companies um, competing for a massive market that has a ton of money flowing into it. So the question is, who's winning? And maybe the best place to start is for you to give us context on the major players today, maybe a little background and history mm -hmm. on them so we can answer that question better. Sure, yeah. So there are, there are four main wireless network operators in the U.S., and, and the names are probably familiar to all of you. Uh, in alphabetical order, they're AT&T, Sprint, T-Mobile, and Verizon Wireless. Um, there are other players in the market as well. The, the only one that's really a significant size at this point is TrackPhone, and TrackPhone is a very different kind of company. It doesn't run a network of its own. It's what's called a mobile virtual network operator, and we've talked about MVNOs a little bit in the past in the context of both Google and Apple uh, in this space, but um, it's an MVNO, uh, and yet it's also the largest prepaid wireless service provider in the U.S., and it uses the other company's networks as the basis of its service, so it pays them a monthly fee for each subscriber and, and runs on that basis. So they're the fifth uh, major player in the U.S. market that, that are worth knowing about. And there's a whole plethora of tiny little players with you know, a few hundred thousand subscribers uh, in, in different parts of the country. Um, but those are the main ones, and that, that's where we'll focus most of our discussion today. But each of those com companies is also different. Um, AT&T and Verizon, perhaps the two most similar companies, um, You know, these came out of the breakup of the original uh, AT&T back in 1984, 
Um, you know, and both of them were regional wireline telecoms providers that eventually got into wireless as well and have made a series of, a series of acquisitions over the last few years and have become the two largest uh, telecoms providers in the US and, and among the largest in the world. And they combine a sort of home and uh, business uh, landline services with wireless services. And so they're able to provide a bundle if they want to of, of wireless services, broadband TV and phone for home. Uh, along with other things. And for business customers, they're able to provide them with wireless services in the U.S. and then uh, landline services both in the U.S. and internationally. Um, Sprint uh, is these days largely owned by a Japanese company called SoftBank. Uh, and SoftBank acquired Sprint uh, a while back with the hopes of also acquiring T-Mobile and merging the two together. Um, but having acquired Sprint, uh, they quickly found out that they weren't going to be allowed to do that by the regulators. Um, and so it's now just a subsidiary of this Japanese company. And then T-Mobile is a subsidiary of a, a different international company, Deutsche Telekom from Germany. Uh, and T-Mobile is the only one of the big four carriers that is a standalone wireless provider. So it doesn't have any kind of landline assets at all in the U.S. Um, Sprint does have some landline assets. You know, they used to be a big long-distance company here in the U.S. Uh, these days, they don't really do much in that area, but uh, they do still provide services to some businesses and that kind of thing on the landline side as well. And then TrackPhone is owned by um, is owned by a Mexican company called America Movil, uh, which is one of the big Mexican mobile operators, which in turn is owned by one of the big uh, one of the wealthiest men in the world, Carlos Slim. So, really interesting sort of different market structure um, and. Uh, the way that these two, these five companies all come at the market, each of them is, is quite different in that sense. So, uh, and there's been a whole range of mergers and acquisitions over the years. Sprint acquired Nextel a few years back and, and absorbed that. Uh, AT&T acquired a smaller uh, prepaid carrier called uh, Leap Wireless, which owned the Cricket brand, and it now runs that brand under AT&T and on the AT&T network. T-Mobile acquired a company called Metro PCS, which was very similar, and that's now one of their prepaid brands and also runs on the T-Mobile network. So all kinds of brands. Um, Sprint has Boost and Virgin as some of its sub-brands, but these are all brands owned by these big five companies. TrackPhone, by the way, uh, runs under the TrackPhone brand, but it's also the provider of the straight talk services that are sold at um, Walmart and uh, Net10 and various other smaller prepaid providers are also part of TrackPhone. Um, so a lot of these companies have several brands that they operate under as well. So that's a really interesting rundown. I, I, I wonder if people appreciate how much foreign investment is involved in U.S. wireless carriers. Yeah, really. I mean, it's one of those things where obviously you've got Japan and uh and Germany is, you know, the sources of the ownership of Sprint and T-Mobile. But over the years, there have been a number of attempts to acquire U.S. companies. Um, the largest British mobile operator, Vodafone, held a very large stake in Verizon Wireless for a long time that Verizon just bought out um, last year. Um, you know, there's a French company that's tried to buy T-Mobile uh, fairly recently. And, and uh, you know, other Japanese companies, including NTT, have had uh, stakes in wireless operators in the U.S. in the past, too. So, yeah, there's a long history of that. Um, and, you know, given how much sort of sensitive data goes over these wireless networks, it's always interesting to think how much of it's owned by overseas companies. Yeah, thanks. So so who is winning? <laughs> and, and more importantly, uh, how do you define winning in this case? Well, because and, and that's seems the like key. there's more than one way to define it. Absolutely, there is. And, and you know, I think if you were to go by the popular press and even, even the coverage in some of the business press, I think you could easily come away with the impression that T-Mobile is kind of running away with things here, that... Um, you know, that they're the most successful by far and so on, you know, that they're winning the most customers and that they're, you know, growing the fastest and all the rest of it. And the reality is that it really does depend on how you define winning. If you define winning by growth in the traditional phone market, then yes, T-Mobile is winning at the moment. It's it's uh, adding the most net new subscribers every quarter pretty consistently for phones. Um, and that's an important qualifier because although we think of these as sort of cell phone companies or, or cell phone providers, in reality, they provide a whole range of services where uh, phones are actually a decreasing proportion of the total. It's about 70 to 80 percent at this point, depending on the carrier. The rest of the market's made up by things like tablets um, and various other kinds of connections, increasingly connections that are not used by individual people, but uh, in other devices or, or objects. So uh, cars are increasingly coming with 4G connectivity built in, um, which the car manufacturers can use to push various services to the car to provide things like OnStar in the car and things like that, um, but also 
companies tracking their trucking fleets or tracking pallets of goods as they travel across the world or um, you know smart uh, utility meters that report back um, you know how much uh, water or electricity the uh, customer is using over the wireless network and things like that so the 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 growth in the industry is largely in those other things the number of phones in use in the US isn't going up that much every year uh, most of the growth is in those other things but T-Mobile is kind of the one company that's been successfully growing on the phone own side and largely by stealing subscribers from uh, Sprint and to some extent the other carriers as well and benefiting from the small amount of growth that is in the market. So again, if you're defining it by growth, Sprint, uh, T-Mobile is the leader. Sprint has been by far in last place because it's been losing subscribers in that space. But if you broaden it out in terms of these other categories that I was just talking about, AT&T is actually winning. They're adding the most subscribers because they're doing really well in connected cars, for example. So they've signed up a lot of the car manufacturers as their provider of 4G services to cars. Um, Verizon also plays in that space print does to some extent t-mobile really hasn't focused on that uh, verizon's the company that's adding the most tablet customers so that's an area where they've really done well uh, but if you take it back sort of take a step back from the sort of customer acquisition side of things and look at the finances uh, and and profit margins and so on actually at&t and verizon are by far the two most profitable companies in this business um, sprint and t-mobile are both sort of marginally profitable and that's the biggest concern here for some investors and certainly for me as an analyst watching this market is that sprint and t-mobile um, you know are very aggressively pursuing growth but they're doing it in a fairly unprofitable way um, and that really reflects their lack of scale in the market. They're much smaller than AT&T and Verizon are in terms of the number of subscribers. And networks and telecoms is a really a scale business. Uh, and so unless you can be like TrackPhone where you can take advantage of other people's networks, uh, you have to get scale to get the profits. And AT&T and Verizon have done that very successfully through organic growth and through acquisitions. And Sprint and T-Mobile kind of struggling around all of that. Um, where T-Mobile has done some really interesting stuff in the last couple of years, though, is um, to offset the advantages the bigger companies have in, in traditional advertising and use social media and things like that as a way of helping some of their campaigns go viral without having to spend quite as much money. And so T-Mobile CEO John Ledger is this very interesting character, pretty brash kind of guy, um, has this huge Twitter following. Uh, and uses that very successfully to help to promote T-Mobile. And the rest of T-Mobile's kind of got on board with that very successfully too. Sprint's tried to mimic that a bit, but the CEO isn't quite as adept at the social media stuff and tends to get offended very easily. And he and John Ledger have gotten a few Twitter fights over the last year or so. Um, but it's been very interesting to watch that. AT&T and Verizon feel very old-fashioned by comparison, very focused on kind of traditional marketing and advertising. But uh, yeah, fascinating to watch it play out. So you know, there's no obvious winner. T-Mobile is kind of winning on the stuff that, that used to be the most important, which is phone growth. Um, AT&T is probably the most forward-looking of the carriers and is growing the most in some of these new areas. Uh, and AT&T and Verizon are the most profitable, um, while Sprint and T-Mobile are less profitable. But, um, you know, T-Mobile has been growing rapidly uh, and hopes to make that a sustainable thing. So if you were a Sprint employee at this point, because Sprint also got in the news recently because... Quite surprisingly, they chose not to bid on New Spectrum in an upcoming Spectrum auction from the FCC. Mm -hmm. And it sort of, it, and they played it off as like, oh, we've got plenty of Spectrum. We're not short on Spectrum. But it, it seemed to really send an, a, an unwritten message that uh, they're struggling financially and have to do some consolidation. If you're a Sprint employee, Sprint customer, how nervous are you right now? Yeah, I think they've they've really struggled over the last few years. They they had a good run for quite a period of time, and then they made a series of acquisitions that kind of hampered them quite a bit and left them with a lot of different network technologies that they had to try to rationalize and consolidate. And so it really distracted them for several years, and their network performance suffered as a result of that. They lost a lot of customers, and they also kind of lost their way in terms of their positioning in the U.S. market. Um, you know, f slogans like "Can you hear me now?" and uh, that kind of thing are very familiar from the other carriers, but I'd challenge you to try to think of an equivalent sprint slogan that you remember in a good way um, because they really lost their way. They don't have a clear position in the market and they're trying to get back in now and do some things there. But, um, you know, they're cutting costs. They just announced, I think, two and a half billion of cost cuts and a round of layoffs and 
they're not participating in the spectrum auction as you said their stated reason is they have enough spectrum but the reality is they are constrained in terms of what they can spend at this point um, and so yeah if i was an employee you know it looks like we've got more tough times ahead after what's already been several tough years if you're a customer it's probably not a big worry they do have soft banks standing behind them um, you know things aren't, aren't going to get worse they are actually going to get better from a network perspective they just uh, came out really well in uh, some network uh, testing that happened in new york city over the past week um, and so they, their network is definitely improving so that should to continue to get better but yeah if you're an employee it's it's probably not a very fun place to be at the moment okay so here's uh the next question and it, mobile carriers feel like an industry that that it feels like this is an industry not easily disrupted and if i think back the last time there was a big disruption was with the iphone and at the time before the iphone everybody sort of said oh nobody can fix this mess and then the iphone showed up android came hot on his heels and and the and it's led to a really huge change right especially when you consider um phone subsidies going by the wayside now that's all part of what the iphone kind of started um is there the potential for another big disruption and where might it come from i mean what's next in the mobile carrier world yeah, it's, it's a great question. I, I wrote a piece a while back about why disrupting the wireless industry is so hard. And, and one of the key reasons is just the scale and the sheer investment in network assets and so on that we talked about before. You know, if you want to compete on a level basis with these big carriers, you have to have your own network. And that takes years to build and it's incredibly costly to maintain. And it's really tough to disrupt them in that way. And we've talked before about this MVNO model that we mentioned briefly earlier and how tough it is to disrupt with that as well because you're dependent on the carriers. And the reality is the only real disruption comes from people who do something in an adjacent space or somehow work over the top of those networks rather than trying to compete with them. And that's exactly what Apple did. They came in and provided a phone that did things very differently, that was very much more kind of self-contained and locked down than the phones that had been sold by the major carriers previously. Um, and as such, the balance of power really shifted a great deal from the carriers to Apple and then eventually to some other device vendors as well. And you see that balance of power continuing to shift today with things like the iPhone upgrade program where customers will now be able to buy their uh, iPhones directly from Apple and, and pay for them in installments the same way they do with carriers. Um, you see it with things like Apple News and Apple Music and other services that Apple's providing that would traditionally have been the purview of carriers trying to make a little extra content money on top of the connectivity fees. And so you know, it is Apple, it is to some extent Google and some of these other companies that are going to be the most disruptive because they're going to take some of the bread and butter services of the carriers and bring them onto their own networks. And then they're going to take Wi-Fi networks um, in homes and businesses and start to use those rather than the carriers networks to do things like calling and video calling and content consumption and that kind of thing that's going to take traffic off the carriers' networks in a way that they have very little control over uh, and it's going to eat into their possible revenue streams. And at the same time, the carriers are going to be reduced more and more to being connectivity providers. And at that point, it really becomes about who has the best network for the lowest price. And that's really not a great place for them to be. Um, and you know that's why you, you still see the carriers really competing on network quality. That's still one of the major drivers of both satisfaction when it's good and dissatisfaction when it's bad for these wireless carriers. Um, but that that is going to be harder and harder to differentiate on that basis. You know, all the carriers are going to have pretty much blanket LTE coverage in the U.S. over the next year or two. Uh, at least, you know, for 310 million people or thereabouts out of the total U.S. population, which is 90 plus percent. Um, and so it's going to get harder and harder for them to differentiate. And that's going to drive people to price as a differentiator, which is not going to be good for any of them, but especially for the two biggest carriers that tend to price a bit higher. So all of this is going to be disruptive. Um, and, you know, the combination of, you know, the device vendors, their software, and the apps that run on top of all of that are likely to continue to disrupt and kind of disintermediate the carriers in a way that they find hard to deal with. If you were a carrier, how would you respond to these changes? Well, I think what AT&T is doing is, is probably the right approach for the long term, and, and kudos to them for starting several years ago. But they jumped on the fact that this was going to happen, and that the phone market was going to stagnate, that opportunities there were going to shrivel up to some extent, at least in terms of growth, and that they were going to have to look at what's new and, and what's next. And so they invested in the connected car space several years ago, uh, and were trying to convince the car makers five years ago that they needed to put connectivity in the cars when the car makers were still very skeptical about that. And yet, all the car makers are essentially on board 
board now with the concept, and many of them are choosing AT and T because they've been doing this the longest. Um, you know, Verizon used to have the OnStar contract, but lost it to AT and T, and they've lost a lot of the other business too. Uh, and the other carriers haven't got much of a, a way in there either. Um, but AT and T is investing in what's called machine to machine communication, which is used by businesses to track assets and things like that in the field. Uh, they're investing in you know connected home with a prog- uh, product called Digital Life, uh, and a whole range of other things that are not sort of tied to the traditional models, and that uh, should provide a lot of new revenue opportunity over the next few years. And, and the challenge for the other carriers is how to catch up uh, and capture some of that market that AT and T's been kind of dominating so far. Well, this is not a company I want to be in charge of. <laughs> it seems like it's going to become an increasingly hostile market for the carriers. Thanks. That was a fascinating rundown. Yeah, no problem. So we'll move on to our final topic for today, which is Steve Jobs, both, um, as I said earlier, the man and the movie, as it were, as it's uh, coming out here shortly. Um, this is the the latest in, in a uh, series of movies about Apple and Steve Jobs. We had uh, an Ashton Kutcher star uh, uh, a few years ago, and then we had a documentary that came out a short while ago about Apple and Steve Jobs as well. And this now is the, the third film in fairly quick succession uh, following Steve Jobs' death. Um, this one is based on the Walter Isaacson biography from a few years back, which was the official authorized biography that Steve Jobs effectively kind of commissioned uh, back in the day. But um, the movie being based on that has caused some criticism from Lorreen Powell Jobs, um, Steve Jobs' widow, um, as well as from Apple executives and a number of other people. So um, interesting time to be thinking about Steve Jobs. But of course, this this week was also the fourth anniversary of the death of Steve Jobs, which followed fairly quickly after he stepped down from running Apple for the last time. Um, what are your thoughts, Aaron, about all of this? Well, you know, I, I'm interested in the defense that's being mounted on on, his, on Jobs' behalf. Um, and it seems to be driven mostly by Tim Cook, and, and, and Mrs. Jobs is doing it too, uh, but it seems much less aggressively. It seemed like, in fact, she was doing as much as she could behind the scenes, uh, maybe even to put a stop to the new movie that's coming out, the Aaron Sorkin one. But um, it... Uh, it it definitely seems very personal, right? It seems like it's coming from people who are close to him that care about him, and they don't like seeing somebody they knew intimately and loved being represented in a way that they think is inaccurate. And I totally get that. I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't even hint at the idea that they aren't entitled to raising that defense. What surprises me is that some of Apple's corporate resources have been invested in in this fight. And I wonder if it's simply because Tim Cook is a CEO and was close friends with Steve Jobs. Um, but it seems right. strange that Apple would be investing money in protecting this legacy uh, versus, mm. you know, it just being sort of the private effort of, of those that were close to him. Yeah, it's interesting. I, mean, I think the two things there. One is, you know, it doesn't feel like any of this stuff about Steve Jobs has really been damaging to Apple, the company. You know, it seems to be largely about him personally. I don't think any of it reflects badly on Apple as a company. And so that makes this interesting, this defense. And yet one of the things that's kind of occurred to me as I've been thinking about these movies in particular is that, you know, both Lorraine Powell Jobs and people like Tim Cook, who worked very closely with him, you know, over the years, they made a series of decisions that his good points, Steve Jobs' good points, outweighed the bad ones. And when you make a very conscious decision like that, and especially in the case of his his wife, you know, you've chosen to overlook some of those negative qualities, and you've chosen to believe that the good points do outweigh the bad. And so when you see a series of books and movies and, and commentary in the press and everything else that reaches a different conclusion or appears to... Um, it must be very tough. And so I wonder if kind of it's, it's, it is sort of personal motivation driving this stuff, even from the Apple executives. You know, Tim Cook feels very personally that, no, Steve Jobs was not the person who's being portrayed here and that he needs to swing all the resources he has both personally and with the company he now controls behind all of that. Um, I thought it was interesting. You know, uh, John Gruber made a remark this week, I think, in one of his posts about the fact that this movie was based on the Isaacson biography and, and what a disaster Isaacson turned out to have been as a biographer. And and I think that kind of gets, to my mind at least, to the root of all this, which is, you know, Steve Jobs chose him, you know, and Gruber sort of suggesting that was a bad choice. But I, I kind of am reminded of the Groucho Marx comment about I wouldn't be a member of any club that would have me as a member. Um, you know, it's like the guy you want to choose as your biographer is not going to be 
you know, a hagiographer. He's not going to be the kind of guy you want to write this glowing kind of whitewash, essentially, because if he does, nobody will take it seriously. The guy you want to choose is somebody who's going to look critically at your life and present a balanced picture. And he, he could have picked a sort of whitewash option, but then nobody would have believed it ultimately. And I think, you know, the fact that Isaacson didn't do that gives him a lot of credibility. Um, but I think at the same time, if you're close to Steve Jobs and, you know, were married to him or worked closely with him for years, you're naturally going to be very defensive of his legacy. And you're going to have seen things that other people won't have seen uh, and that therefore aren't on the public record and aren't going to make their way into these books. You know, and that's one of the funny things about the Isaacson biography is that he had such personal access equivalent to in many ways, the access had by Steve's close friends and his family. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, uh, and yet Steve Jobs was notorious for being an intensely personal guy. You know, like he, right. he he didn't like putting his family in the spotlight at all. He didn't, you know, like investigations into the personal details. I mean, when he went through his health scare, that's where the that's where it really showed itself with how right. with how intensely private he was with the details of that. Um, and and so you know, as he was sort of realizing that his legacy was wrapping up, that's when he brought in Isaacson and. I think he recognized that what he did was notable, and I suspect there was a tension internally with him, you know, the, the side of him wanting to be very private and the side of him recognizing that, you know, this that this legacy is important. And I'm, the way I'm describing it makes it sound like he was, you know, being very, like, you know, self-sacrificing in this process. I don't think that was it. I mean, there was a part of him that was definitely prideful, just like any person, and, mm -hmm. and I think there was some of that going on, too. I wonder if Isaacson was maybe flattering in the right ways <laughs> you know right. to get yeah, some jobs to go possible. along but yeah. um, I, I, I do think that the, the responses to sort of paint this other side of Steve have been have been unfortunately a little weak almost strangely weak I, it, ABC just did a news spot about the softer side of Steve Jobs in response to the to the new movie that's coming out and they showed some clips that Apple that the corporation provided to ABC News, and there are clips from a, right. from like a town hall meeting that Steve Jobs had with Apple employees, and you know, there's a moment where he says, "Go hug a retail employee," and and right. somebody asks him about his jeans, why they're so like why they have holes in the knees, uh -huh, uh -huh. but it's pretty sparse stuff. I mean, it's really thin. If you're trying to make a case that Steve Jobs really had this like unknown, really gentle side that a whole bunch of other people knew there's not a lot of outward evidence of it. I mean, it seems like the evidence that yeah. Apple provided ABC was pretty thin. Yeah. And this is, I mean, obviously you're not always going to have captured that stuff on tape, so that's hard, but you know, you'd at least think you'd see more anecdotes and stories and things. And it's funny. I mean, one of the stories that I saw Tim Cook told again, that he's told before was all about when he offered part of his liver to Steve Jobs when he needed a liver transplant and Steve Jobs refused that. And Tim Cook sort of saw this as this sort of self-sacrificing, you know, move on Steve Jobs' part. So that's a pretty low bar for humanity, to be honest. Like, you know, you'd hope most people would say, actually, yeah, don't put your own life in danger in order to save my life. You know, it's, kind of if that's the best we can do surely surely we can do better than that you know if there really is a lot of evidence out there and I think you know the challenge here is I don't think anybody's saying that Steve Jobs wasn't immensely successful at what he did as a businessman that he didn't create several you know really world-changing products that have made you know many people's lives better and all the rest of it nobody's saying that I think the challenge is that a lot of the criticisms come down to the fact that he wasn't a very nice person um, and you know, that's what hasn't really been refuted here by any of the people who seem to know him well uh, in stories or otherwise. And, you know, I, I, it's hard to escape the conclusion that, yes, he, he really wasn't a very nice person much of the time, at least to the people that he worked with. Perhaps he was a little nicer to, the, to his family members, but they seem to be at least willing to talk about that. And, and as such, it's, it's a bit tough for them to sort of refuse others the right to write about what is known publicly and, and claim that it's somehow flawed when, you know, nobody seems to have access to this supposed other side of him. That's right. The, the defense seems to be, hey, Steve could be nice. But that's not the same right. as, saying, as saying that Steve is nice. As he was regularly nice. was, right. And, uh -huh. and, and you know what? It, I, you know what? It, I... I I am imagining him being soft with his family. And I say that because I've known men like him, like that were very hard in their careers mm. out in the world. And then they were different at home. They, they were right. soft and kind and gentle with those yeah. that they loved and uh, that were close to them. I, I don't think we need to 
hate Steve Jobs because of this. Right, like, I, don't, right. I don't think we need to see it as a criticism. It's just a reality of, I mm-hmm. think, a lot of what describes the success, as a matter of fact. Um, I mean, I saw one of the clips on, on I think it was The Tonight Show, um, because they, uh, Jimmy Fallon was interviewing Seth Rogen, and it showed a clip of an argument that they that Steve Jobs and Woz were having. And, and you know, it, it, part of his success was the fact that he drove people. And right. he did it in some ways that were cruel. Um, mm-hmm. What he produced is immensely valuable to a lot of individuals, including right. the employees who worked for him. Um, could he have done it as a nice guy? I don't know, that's a counterfactual that we're never going to be able to prove. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it seems strange that we should even try to prove it. I, I think if you're interested right. in Steve Jobs' personality, you got to take it for what it is, warts and all. Mm-hmm. If you're interested yeah. in his success professionally, there's there are a ton of really valuable lessons to learn. My worry is that some mm-hmm. people will take it as, well, I can be a jerk because Steve Jobs was a jerk. Right, um, right. Uh, you know that that's that's the facts are not in evidence there you can't prove that that's a necessary path to being successful yeah absolutely yeah for all that jeff bezos and elon musk (laughs) and various others seem to be sort of going down that same path but yeah it doesn't seem to be a necessary qualification yeah or the the way it goes in the movie and this is like going to be one of the highly quotable lines is that it's not binary (laughs) Mm -hmm. you can be kind and successful so Right. Yeah. And that's, it's interesting. I, I saw a, the Macworld kind of pulled together a series of quotes from a panel that I think Sorkin and Boyle did where they, they quoted that line as part of kind of defense of the way they approached the movie. And we'll link to that because there were some really interesting quotes there in terms of their defense of how they approached things and, and how they thought about it. If, if anybody's interested um, in this subject, um, do you have to be mean to be successful? There's a fantastic book written by a, a Wharton Business School professor called Give and Take. The professor's name is Adam Grant. He's done extensive, like, award-winning research on this idea of if you can be a generous person and still be successful. Great. That's good. I'll, I'll look that up and put it in the show notes as well. Um, let's wrap up then with our weekly pick. And Aaron, it's your turn this week. Yeah, so this one comes from a New York Times op-ed that, that just came out, uh, let's see, was it today? It was, uh, no, it was on the 2nd. Um, but of October, but it was an, it is a piece called the hypocrisy of quote helping the poor. I'm doing air quotes um, of helping mm. the poor, <laughs> and, uh, and and it basically makes the case that outsourcing um, manufacturing to China is the reason the South is so poor. Um, mm. It's really poorly reasoned, and in a way that kind of frustrates me. And, and it's not just because of the business school side of me. I mean, I do a lot of public management-oriented stuff. I work with nonprofits on things, and that's one of my areas of expertise. And so I, I get the sentiment, but I didn't at all appreciate the, the misunderstanding of basic economics. And so in the spirit of that, I'm recommending an oldie but a goodie book that I think uh, the listeners might really enjoy. It's a book mm. called New Ideas from Dead Economists. And it's written by an economist named Todd Buchholz. He is a former economic advisor to the first George Bush. And uh, the book is a really entertaining read. Um, But what it does is it goes through sort of the history of economics, starting with Adam Smith and moving on forward. It does it in a very pithy, kind of interesting way. It does a good job of telling you about the lives of these economists and the ideas they came up with and why they're important. Um, right. And he d- and he covers the free market guys like like Adam Smith and 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 uh, and David Ricardo, but he also talks about like Keynes and Marx and sort of these others that have less of a free market approach. Um, that said, he does definitely come from a free market perspective. So uh, so you're going to read it where he, he takes some jabs at Marx as he goes along, but. But the, but the point is, is that he does it in a really entertaining way. He tells you about the personal lives of these economists as, as he goes along. And if, you, if, there are, if there are concepts in economics that you've never had a chance to sit down and fully understand, some of these basic ones, this is mm. a fantastic book for that. And, so it's, and it's pretty cheap, too. It's 13 bucks on Amazon. And, and right. uh, so it's called New Ideas from Dead Economists, a fascinating, entertaining read. 
Great. Thanks for that recommendation. Yeah, we'll have to check that out. Uh, we'll put a link to that book as well as um, the other book that Aaron mentioned just now and a number of links to blog posts and news articles and so on that are relevant to the discussion that we've had today uh, on the website in the show notes. That's at podcast.beyonddevices. Um, thank you for being with us this week. Again, we appreciate you being with us and we look forward to being with you again next week. Thanks. <laughs>